0: Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, and welcome to
1: Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. It's an understatement to say that these past two years have been full of stress and stressors, especially for women who have always worn many hats, but we've been called upon to add even more during this pandemic. So perhaps living in the present doesn't sound appealing, but today's guest will help us understand how to make presence work for us. We'll be talking about mindfulness, the benefits to both our mind and our bodies, how to incorporate it into our everyday lives, and even how large companies are using mindfulness to help their employees and improve their bottom lines. We're going to talk with Dr. Terry Pipe. Director of the Center for Mindfulness, Compassion, and Resilience at Arizona State University. Dr. Pipe is also the former dean of the ASU School of Nursing and Health Innovation. Welcome, Terry. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So glad to have you. You know, when we first met, you were the dean of the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at ASU. And I remember even then you were not only interested in mindfulness, but you actually had developed a program for nurses. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got interested in mindfulness?
2: Absolutely. Thank you for the question. So my interest in mindfulness started when I was the director of nursing research and innovation at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and it really started as a scientific pursuit. At the same time, um, understanding that the environment in the hospital and healthcare settings is often so distracted and interrupted and loud. And there's great, there's high stakes involved, you know, life or death stakes. And so understanding ways to teach nurses and other healthcare providers how to really cultivate a focused presence so that those distractions and interruptions are not as threatening to patient safety. So that was really the context for how I got interested. And so I learned about mindfulness in the way that it is, has been brought to the uh, medical community, which is through Don Kabat-Zinn's uh, Center for Mindfulness at UMass Medical Center. So I learned how to not only use it as a researcher, but then to bring it into um, coursework and into patient care environments and also help different populations way beyond the healthcare arena in order to
1: build that skill set of paying attention intentionally to the present moment. A little explanation before we get too far. Dr. John Kabat-Zinn is known for his work in bringing mindfulness into the mainstream. He founded the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic in 1979 and the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society in 1995 at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. His mindfulness based stress reduction program is an eight week curriculum that is highly standardized and follows a specific format.
2: So, this eight week course, some of the skills that are really essential in it are mindful breathing, yoga, mindful walking, mindful eating, uh, silence. You know, there, there's a day or a, a session that is really hours long of. Being silent, the body scan is part of this. So, learning these practices, but not just learning them, doing them over and over and over and over, and then debriefing within the group about what was that like? How did you experience that? And having people learn from each other's experience. And then bringing those practices into day to day life. So, those, the practices I just talked about, yoga, the body scan, those are known as formal practices and then bringing it into life everyday life like washing dishes or washing your hair or you know feeding your child whatever that is bringing mindful awareness into it so that's the 8 week course but i think the idea is for me anyway the the best dose is what you'll do I mean, what is reasonable for you? And then once you start to practice, probably you'll want more of that in your life. So you'll increase the dose and you'll see an increased response. But it, to me, it just has to be personally meaningful for, for each person.
1: Some people conflate mindfulness with meditation. And what you're talking about is very specific and different. So can you explain that?
2: Sure. So mindfulness is really about Again, the skill of paying attention in the moment. Mindfulness can be practiced in everyday life. And that often includes meditation or mindful walking, yoga, mindful eating, lots of different um, really concentrated practices. So I always think of it as mindfulness is like the term sport and meditation is like basketball. It's a type of mindfulness. Not all mindfulness practices are meditation. And this is really, I think, um, important for people who may have tried meditation before and for whatever reason it didn't quite click with them, there's still opportunity to learn mindfulness skills, even if meditation isn't quite the, the approach
1: I have a very active monkey mind in terms of the chatter, and so it's really hard for me to sit still. And so I find that doing something with movement, you mentioned yoga, Mm -hmm. I've found that to be very useful in terms of how to quiet that mind a little bit. Mm
2: -hmm. Often when the body is in motion, the mind can still, sort of like a gyroscope, has the outer movement but the inside stillness you know i taught um caregivers mindfulness and and most of them happen to be elderly caregivers of uh, spouses or, or friends and one of the gentlemen i remember so vividly said that when he swam that was his mindfulness practice because of the rhythmic you know being in the water and the, the strokes of the swimming activity really brought a centered presence to his inner
1: world That makes perfect sense. With respect to mindfulness, other than the calming and stress reduction, which I think so many of us go to those kinds of practices for, there's other benefits. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So we're finding more and more, the research in this area is really growing. Uh, But some of the early research has really been um, substantiated that things like blood pressure, even things like uh, blood glucose, um, muscle strength, um, bone integrity, all of these things can be helped by practices like mindfulness. Now again, while mindfulness is very important at the individual well-being level, it's also important in the, the family setting, the group, neighborhood, community, societal setting, and a planetary setting, by the way. And so anytime that we bring a sense of centeredness and attention to ourselves, it does have a contagion to it in a, the most positive aspect of contagion. So that when we bring mindfulness into our homes and into our neighborhoods, we're part of that larger system. And so when we change a part of the system, we change the system. Um, and so, you know, even... You can imagine mindful eating. If we were more mindful about how we ate and what we ate, it could have a really big impact on the planet in terms of, you know, the things that we're eating and the cost to the the planet in terms of climate change.
1: I love that. Just in terms of just one, one good action begets others. You know, this has been a really stressful time and people are really looking for ways to center themselves and reduce their stress. Obviously, one of my specific areas of interest is women's health, and this can be so important to women. And I think you've uh, really talked about how women have some special needs and how they can use some of these practices.
2: Mm-hmm. So one thing that you know, we're hearing a lot these days is that much of the stress that is happening, particularly for women, comes from the roles that they're, they're playing, that we are playing. Yes. And that it's not just one. For many women, it's multiple roles. And they're being blurred. And the the ability to prioritize or compartmentalize roles is really impacted by the way that we're living because of the pandemic. And so, you know, thinking about ways that we can interrupt that stress response is very important um, for, for women's health overall in, in terms of a whole-person whole health outlook.
1: Sources of stress for many women are symptoms related to perimenopause and menopause. I asked Dr. Pipe if there's been any data that suggests that mindfulness might actually help reduce some common symptoms, such as hot flashes or insomnia.
2: One thing that can really help with hot flashes is to imagine, use the power of your imagination to imagine a cool breeze, or a cool sitting on the end of a dock with your feet in the water, um, imagining cold, <laughs> and what that would do for your body, and practicing it again and again and again. Uh, there have been some studies, early studies, looking at hypnosis and hot flashes that are really interesting, and, and looking at the power of you know self-suggestion, self suggestion, um, self imagery guided imagery uh, to reduce those symptoms uh sleep insomnia not only not being able to get to sleep but being interrupted at night and, and trying to go back to sleep uh, the body scan, so scanning through your body and just feeling whatever is there not trying to change it but just accepting it as it is moving from your head to your toes your toes to your head and just really um you know, noticing what is there. And often, you know, halfway through, you'll go to sleep again. (laughs) Because it's kind of boring. And, (laughs) and, you know, that that can help. There are also, one thing that I'm finding very useful is um, called yoga nidra. And it's yoga that is not movement yoga, but it's sort of using your mind to uh, interface with different parts of your body. And so there are yoga nidra sessions that are, you know, available on apps on your phone that will guide you through sort of this, uh, relaxation, but then, um, verbally cueing you to go from side to side of your body and from body part to body part. And it's amazing how effective it is in terms of, uh, sleep, getting back to sleep or getting to sleep at night. And then uh appetite, I think, is something that and, and weight gain is something that many women experience. So a couple of things around that, you know, thinking about mindful eating, thinking about mindful eating as not eating restriction, but enjoying what you eat when you eat it, and remembering that you're a choice of what you eat and what will help you feel better. You know, a lot of women find that certain substances bring on a hot flash, like caffeine or red wine. Other other things may too. It's very uh, personalized. So figuring out what might trigger your symptoms and then just mindfully saying, I'm going to take care of myself by not having that right now. It doesn't mean that you won't ever get to have it <laughs> right now. Maybe it's better to choose something else. So I think that that can be uh, really helpful.
1: Right. You mentioned before just the impact on caregivers and obviously women, tend to bear the brunt of that. They're also employees trying to juggle that as well as being at home. You know, I think that one real important aspect is that our children are watching. And so how can we help them understand the importance of mindfulness and integrate those activities into their daily routine?
2: So the first thing is exactly what you just mentioned is our children are watching. Even adult children are watching. And so, and even other people's children are watching. (laughs) And so being um, a model, we, we talk about being a real model instead of a role model. Just be real. And it doesn't have to mean that you're perfect. It just means that bringing, you know, allowing your children to watch you. If you do practice mindfulness, if you practice, you know, meditation or yoga or whatever it is, saying out loud that you're doing this. And this is why, and then just practice. It doesn't necessarily take you teaching them or, um, you know, trying to push your practice on them. It's more of an invitation and often just the curiosity of, hmm, what is she doing? And what is the impact on her mood and her emotional life and her physical life? That can be enough to just invite that curiosity, even for little children. Having said that, there are lots of ways to teach mindfulness to the kids if they do show a curiosity about it. Um, you know, for the tiniest kids, you can even have them lay on their back and put a, a teddy bear or you know a, a stuffed animal, something like that, on their tummy and then have them take a deep breath and then exhale. And the instruction is just move the, the stuffed animal up and down with your breath and then they, and how does that feel in your body and how does it feel in your mind? You know, what's what's happening in you when you do that? And this even works, you know, for teenagers if they're they're silly enough, if they're willing to be silly enough to, to try it. It's a really good activity to actually see the breath move in and out.
1: I think that would be fun just to do with a child <laughs> myself. I have to say, I so resonate with that because, I don't know, a few years ago before, you know, mindfulness and, and all of this was cool, if you will, I um, took my two daughters who are now in their 20s on a mindfulness retreat for about two hours just with some of these specific exercises. And I will say that they do use some of those things even now and started exploring some of these areas.
2: Yeah. Well, and, you know, I work with a lot of uh, college students now and there's a real hunger for, for these practices and how it impacts things like, you know, homework assignments or sleep or just the, the social anxiety, of not knowing, you know, all of us are living in this bit of uncertainty right now. And so I think there is a curiosity and an openness to learning practices that can help us better
1: navigate. You were the former chief well-being officer, and it's a great story about how you came to be that, and also, how do you define well-being?
2: Sure. (laughs) So those two two answers can go hand in hand. So the students, the student leaders at Arizona State University, every year come together and provide President Michael Crow with recommendations about what is top on their mind, what's priority, and that year, it was uh, 2016, 2017, that group really prioritized, they call it wellness, we'll get back to that in a second, wellness as their priority. And so they provided him with this recommendation of appointing an executive leader to oversee um, the and, and really uh, support efforts in wellness and well-being. And so he uh, he knew that I was very passionate about this. And so he asked if I would be the chief well-being officer. So, of course, I said yes to that. It was a, a, a wonderful um, opportunity for me. And in sort of the early days, we decided to change the name to Reflect Well-Being. And the reason is, it's subtle, of course, but the reason is that, you know, when you, we think about wellness, oftentimes we think about um, someone that is... Uh, strong or they're perfect in terms of their health or they you know they have an integrated ability uh, to, to do things and that isn't always the case you know we all have well-being and our well-being can be challenged at certain times it doesn't mean that we don't have well-being it just means that it changes with seasons and with years and with challenges that we come up with So we just found the the term well-being to be a little bit more inclusive rather than uh, exclusive. And to me, what it means is that it means everything that impacts your sense of being well. And so that can range from your, your sexual health to your financial, your social health, your nutrition, your activity, all of it in your community, your sense of community. It's not just about putting more machines at the fitness center. You know, it's, it's so much more than that.
1: You talked about the word well-being versus wellness. I'm also struck by the title of the center or the name of the center, the Center for Mindfulness, Compassion, and Resilience. Why did you pick those three words to describe the center?
2: Thank you. Well, I have to tell you a little bit about the origin story of the center and then I'll get to that. So when I came from Mayo to ASU, I had a community of of mindfulness researchers that I worked with at Mayo. When I got to ASU and I started going around and meeting people, they were they were kind of interested that I was the Dean of Nursing, but more than that, they were interested in the mindfulness on my my um portfolio. And it became very clear to me that I needed to bring these people together because work needed to happen and connections needed to happen. And so we just met at my house and we just shared food and we started a practice and then we built community. And so, you know, after a year and a half or so, they really said, let's build a center. And so when we were designing the center and really thinking about what, what should it be? What should it include? And, and not, we brought in a group of people and did a human centered design where we talked about, you know, who are the users of the center? What would they like in terms of their experience? And out of that day, it was just an eight-hour day, uh, came the, the words, Center for Mindfulness, Compassion, and Resilience, because those were the sort of the buckets of aspiration, you know, that people really wanted to see. If we think about uh, a university community and the community around us, those were the three words that really stuck
1: with the fallout of the pandemic, compassion and resilience seem just so, you know, on the button. And so how do you progress compassion and resiliency, either within yourself or with others?
2: Mindfulness is a way to be open to the opportunity, because when you're mindful, you're awake and alive to the opportunity to be compassionate, right? So many of us just move through life without really seizing the moment-by-moment opportunity. So mindfulness is sort of the sets the tone. And then when we see an opportunity to bring a bit more kindness and empathy and connection first to ourselves, perhaps, and then to others, sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes it's bringing compassion to others so that we can bring it to ourselves. But certainly if we don't take the chance to make meaning for ourselves about what we've been through, you know, that's what resiliency is built on is really making sense of and making meaning integrating it into our own personal story of you know who are you with this experience and how have you grown stronger and and, you know what can you bring forward as your legacy in terms of what have you learned and how can you impact your future and the future of those around you in a better way
1: and any specific exercises or activities that you suggest in order to start getting to that place?
2: Yeah. So I love, so Kristen Neff is a researcher out of the uh, University of Texas, and she has a whole center on self-compassion. And so from that center come a lot of different practices. And so there is one that I'll, I'll just describe. Um, you know, if we had. 10 minutes or so we could actually do the practice but I'll describe it for you so this is your homework <laughs> this is all of our homework <laughs> so the, the idea is for you to think about a problem or an issue that you've been having something that's been bugging you not you know on a scale of 10 not a 10 but maybe a five okay so just everyone has one or, 10 or two of those so you just keep that in mind and then you get to a place where you're really calm and relaxed, maybe closing your eyes, doing some muscle relaxation. And so you're really able to relax and let go. And then imagine that you have a, you're sitting and you have a chair in front of you and in walks your best friend or someone that you really genuinely care about. And they start telling you about their problem and it happens to be your problem that you've been dealing with. And how can you as a listener really convey support and encouragement and care for that friend of yours, that loved one? How would you do it? What would you say? How would you be? Would you reach out and give them a hug or a pat on the shoulder? What would you do? And really letting that happen in your imagination and seeing how well they receive it and having them thank you so much for doing that. Keeping in mind, you don't have to solve the problem. That's not it. You just have to be there for them. And then they get up and they walk away. And then in comes you. And so you're looking at you. And you bring the same kind of listening and support that you would for a friend. And you listen to yourself describe your situation. You don't try to solve it. um, But you just listen. And you know, can you talk to yourself the way that you would a friend and can you just yourself support and care and love the way that you would a friend and then you know you're grateful for it and you leave and then the next steps are really important too is that giving yourself credit for all the things that you've already done to try to solve the problem because probably you've done a lot even just mentally you probably problem solved a lot so give yourself some credit there And then think about all the people in the world who have had that problem or that issue, not just today, but across history and in the future, that many, many, many people have had that issue. And that's not to diminish the fact that you have it, it's just to highlight the fact that you're connected to those people. And that once you get through this as they have, you know, others have come through this, you'll be able to help and provide compassion to them because of the experience of going through this problem. And so you find a connectivity with other humans, not only, you know, now, but in the past and in the future. And then just a sense of, okay, I did this now in my mind, in an extended exercise. Could I do this on a more in the moment basis? You know, when you drop something and it breaks, could you, instead of saying, I'm such a klutz, could you say, oh, you know, no problem. This is going to be easy to clean up. It was just a mistake. You know, that's a, a trivial example. But could you just start to bring in more compassion, and that patterning then starts to be the more automatic pattern than self-loathing uh, or self-criticism or, or the things, the negative stories that we tell ourselves so often. So that's one exercise that I really love to do. And when we do it in, in face-to-face with you know people and groups. There are generally tears. And when we debrief the exercise, <laughs> it's so different than the way that I talk to myself normally. And, you know, and a willingness to try it. You know, just kind of, okay, I'm going to try this because it felt good.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it's already just getting me right here. It's, it's so powerful.
2: Right. And, you know, we have a lot of external messages about the importance of being perfect or being a certain way that isn't particularly the way that we are right now. And so it also just underscores the fact that you're enough, you're good enough right now, just as you are. Doesn't mean that you have to give up your dreams and your aspirations,
1: your goals, and you are good enough right now. I wanted to pause there for a moment. What does being good enough right now have to do with our physiological health? Well, it's something that researchers are also trying to understand. What we do know from a growing field known as positive psychology is that doing mindful practices that focus on positive things happening to us or positive traits that we like about ourselves can have a corresponding positive impact on our health. Resilience is also a concept that has garnered growing interest as a way of successfully coping with adversity. But how does one become resilient? especially as we age and encounter more challenges? I pose the question to Dr. Pipe. Moving on to resilience, we talked about resilient aging when we first spoke and your background is as a geriatric nurse. And of course, none of us wants to think of ourselves as geriatric, but of course we are all aging, everyone is. So you have a really fresh perspective on that. So please share with us.
2: Thank you. Well, the first thing is, you know aging really is part of life and when you get to be however old i am or you are it means that you've you've celebrated a lot of days a lot of life and hopefully have many more to celebrate and so just kind of looking at it you know unfortunately i have a lot of people in my life that didn't make it to be this age and so thinking that of it Like, this is really an opportunity and a gift that that not everybody gets to have. And so just coming at it with a bit of um, gratitude and humility. The other, I guess, aspect is that, you know, in terms of women's health, is thinking about things that we can do that are probably a part of our life already that can support us feeling really good and vibrant as we age and as we grow older. And they're often simple things that you're probably already doing. Things like eating a balanced diet and just watching, you know, what makes you feel good and alive and fresh and what doesn't. And so just, you know, leaning into the ones that, the things that you bring into your body that helps you feel better. And then physical activity that you love to do and that you will do. And, you know, this is just, me but it pushes you a bit it's good to elevate your heart rate and to sweat and to give a little out of breath and so whatever it is that you know is something that you can do routinely that will do that for you is great hydration you know drinking enough water every day and then really you know i mentioned physical physical activity but Balancing that in terms of strength and flexibility and, and cardiovascular, I think becomes more and more important as we grow older to not just go into one of those, but to go into all of them. And then socially, you know, what, what do you do? What are the connections that really make you feel alive and, and happy and joyful and going for those, allowing yourself to really engage in those activities, whether they're social or, or by yourself. Um, Engaging in the arts or music, or you know, just um, a cause that is really important for you. There's all kinds of ways, but I think uh, allowing yourself to really reflect and every year, or every month, or every week, thinking intentionally about how do I want to be? How do I want to be? And then choosing behaviors that will get you there. And part of being a a nurse and and watching different um, models of aging is. You know, you, you can find people that are really grumpy and grouchy and do not celebrate their life. And that's choice. I mean, I, I could go down that road. Or, you know, there's there's also so many examples of people that just embrace their life. And yeah, they might have big challenges, but they just do the best they can. And that's what I, you know, those are the people that I want to be more
1: like. Absolutely. I can think of a patient I used to have with just really severe rheumatoid arthritis, very disfiguring, never complained, always had that positive outlook. She did Tai Chi, by the way, and really found a lot of uh, comfort in that. She was my role model, if you will. Mm -hmm. Anytime I had a bad day, I would think, you know, if, if she can do what she does, I can certainly get through my day. And I think what you also said really resonates in terms of giving yourself permission to understand what makes you happy or what you enjoy. I don't think women give themselves enough permission to enjoy themselves and to think about what they want or what they need. So thank you for saying that. And many folks are going to go back to work or work from home. And I know you've done a lot of work with companies and employers in terms of mindfulness and the one that again has always stuck in my brain is what you did with waste management which is trash collecting right mm-hmm. so please tell us about that
2: the waste management industry has one of the highest mortality rates from on-the-job accidents and you can see where that would happen it's dangerous they're big machines they go you know on a route or on a routine basis and sometimes when we get into that automated uh, activity our minds kind of shut off, right? I mean, it's just routine. And so accidents can happen. So they asked me to come in and keynote their (laughs) their, um, national or international conference. And it was amazing to me how open the leaders of that group, and it was probably a 1000 people, how open they were to really um, practicing mindfulness, and then bringing it back to their groups. And one thing I really appreciated about that industry is that they're they're looking at ways to not only um, teach individuals how to be mindful, but to bring practices into the organization itself that support whole person well-being, um, and mindfulness is part of that. And I think, you know, very often when workplaces bring in something like mindfulness, it, so much of the focus is on the employee only. Without looking at the whole context of the organization and making changes in the organization that will support um, taking a pause, you know, giving people a place, a physical place to practice, giving permission and actually encouragement to do these practices and, and really tailoring the practice to the work environment and making it part of, you know, the culture.
1: And I think hopefully that they might because they want to attract and keep workers. It makes perfect sense. Do you have any sense of, and I'll put this in quotes, return on investment? Some organizations like Aetna
2: have done ROI analysis of teaching mindfulness, incorporating it into their culture. And it was pretty stunning, the, the return on investment in terms of uh, employee turnover, um, you know, absenteeism, sick leave i think um often you know stress has so many different manifestations and it can keep people out of the the workplace or out of being productive in in whatever work they do because they don't feel well or they're not able to to bring the best energy to the work that that they can so i think certainly um that is an area of of more and more interest for sure
1: We were talking about, you know, going back to work and kids are going back to school and people are wearing masks, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And some folks have some anxiety around wearing the mask or problems with it, especially if you're on a plane and you're doing that for a long period of time. Any suggestions about how to reduce that anxiety through mindfulness?
2: I'll give you a couple. I'll just offer a couple of really small things that have, I think, pretty big impact. So one is... Uh, stay where your feet are. <laughs> so instead of thinking about <laughs> your mask and your face, get out of that part of your anatomy and, and really go to your feet and feel your feet on the floor, maybe even squinch up your toes. Sometimes it's helpful to like inhale, and then as you exhale, squinch up your toes and then release your toes. And so you're breathing linked with your feet. And so sometimes just getting that embodiment and understanding that you're not just about, you know, this part of your your being, you're about the whole body. Sometimes that can move that anxiety and, and lessen it a lot. Um, the next thing is, you know, if you notice that you're anxious about the mask and the, the breathing part, maybe just um, noticing where in your body you feel ease and comfort. And so traveling there with your mind just going to where that, that is. It might be your hands or your shins or your stomach. I don't know where it is for you, but just noticing what does that ease and comfort feel like. And then allowing yourself to go back to the anxiety for a minute and then go back to the comfort. And just notice that both of them are there. They're both part of you. They're both part of your experience. And that both of them will shift and change. And that, you know, You're not going to wear the mask for the rest of your life. It might feel like it, but you will be able to take it off in a minute, you know, at the end of your flight or, you know, you, you don't have to wear it 24 seven. Um, there will be a moment where you can take it off. So that will change. And so I think just refocusing your mind from what is really bugging you to where in your body are you feeling ease and comfort?
1: Oh, Dr. Terry Pipe, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Terry Pipe is the founding director of the Center for Mindfulness, Compassion and Resilience at Arizona State University. Terry, thank you again. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Be well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The takeaways are mindfulness is simply paying attention to the present moment. You can engage in weeks-long programs to learn mindfulness techniques, but you can also take moments in your day to be aware of your breathing or eating or routine chores like washing dishes. The more you practice, the more you become more mindful. Mindfulness can contribute to better health, including improving blood pressure and blood glucose, and even increasing muscle strength and bone integrity. Mindfulness and meditation can also be helpful as an aid to manage physical symptoms, such as those related to menopause, like hot flashes and insomnia. It can also help reduce anxiety. And according to Dr. Pipe, when we're more aware in the present moment, we tend to bring more kindness, empathy, and connection, first to ourselves and then to others. This compassion can also be very healing. So what will you take away from this episode and incorporate into your own life? Please let us know by going to our social media at Twitter, Facebook,
0: Instagram, or LinkedIn. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube instagram twitter and facebook this episode of beyond the paper gown was produced by patrick shambayati and dr mitzi crockover until next time stay healthy and centered